we actually have to fundamentally upgrade our worldview in a way that is commensurate with science and includes but transcends science. Hey folks, Mark Devine coming at you with the Unbeatable Mind podcast. Welcome back. Thanks for joining me this week. And we have a really, really cool show for you this week. Before I get going and introduce my really cool guest, friend and super brain Daniel Smockenberger, let me remind you that nobody can find this podcast if you don't go rate it on iTunes. And so my dream is that when people go and they search for like Joe Rogan or Tim Ferriss, Unbeatable Mind Podcast pops up and everyone says, whoa, check that out. It's got 6,000 five-star reviews. We better watch that. So go rate it on iTunes if you uh, have the time. And if you're not on our email list, then you uh, might be missing out. So go to unbeatablemind.com slash podcast and just drop your name on our email list. And then you'll see that we send you all sorts of cool things and we don't spam you very often. But once in a while we do. At any rate, that's a different issue. So, Daniel, super cool to see you again, my friend. Wow. Welcome. So, Danielle, I'm going to uh, do the best I can with a short introduction, and then I'll, we'll let Daniel speak for himself, which is the whole point of this podcast, by the way. So, Daniel, born in Colorado, lived many, many different places, and now settled in, believe it or not, Encinitas, California, right down the road from us. Daniel is a deep thinker. Uh, he's like a human big, big brain computer. Uh, he's the founder of the Emergence Project, which is a think tank to take a, like a systems view of the world and to see if we can bring some new thinking to solve some problems that are hitherto unsolvable or intractable is the word you used. Also on the board of the Center for Integral Wisdom where I met him with Ken Wilber and a few other uh, notable integral theorists and um, trying to kind of evolve the source, source code for spirituality, which is fascinating work. And now, more recently, the co-founder of the Neurohacker Collective. So we're going to talk about all of those things today and probably more. Daniel, super cool to see you again, and uh, thanks for coming. Thanks for having me. Really good to see you. Yeah, you. you as well. So, you know, like I mentioned a little while ago, your work is very interesting and inspiring, and every time we talk, like, I leave a conversation feeling like not only do I have a little bit more knowledge, but like for some reason, a couple of the, a couple more connections have been made. Like my consciousness, just by the expansiveness of the conversation, has actually grown a little bit. I think that's fascinating. Like your brain doesn't work the same way. I keep saying that. Your brain doesn't work the same way as most people's. How did you evolve as a human being? Like where did, where did Daniel come from? Like besides the DNA part and the mother's womb part, where did you come from? What were your influences and what helped you become who you are today? Well, when you talk about connecting different areas and that kind of interconnected worldview, being able to do transdisciplinary and kind of interdisciplinary work, I had a really fortunate early head start in that area, mm. which is that I was homeschooled growing up. Oh, cool. Yeah. And my parents were kind of educational theorists and they wanted to run an experiment and the experiment you, you were the experiment of one yeah, exactly. <laughs> n equals one yeah and the the experiment was if you give a kid no curriculum at all and expose them to as many topics as possible see what they're interested in and facilitate the interest see what happens is that like unschooling is that where that unschooling is similar to that so, now it didn't exist when i was growing right. up so when i was a kid i didn't have a certain amount of math, social studies, English, right? I never 
I actually still have illegible handwriting because I didn't do all the letters. I, I, I never learned state capitals. Can you string a sentence together? <laughs> I'm pretty sure you can. I can, I can string a yeah. sentence together. But there were just areas that I wasn't called towards, but I was fascinated by all the sciences. Interesting. And one of the neat things was because there weren't subject divisions, I didn't, I didn't even have the concept. You didn't have to that, verticalize them right. and compartmentalize them like, like a normal student. So physics and chemistry and biology and astrophysics explaining how the atoms got created that are in our body within the kind of biophysics of how human organisms work. It was all interconnected. Right. right? And it was all interconnected also with the philosophic systems that gave rise to why does universe work that way. And so growing up, that was... So were you thinking about those things as a, like a yeah. seventh grader or ninth grader or something? Much earlier, because one of the other parts of uh, kind of my early education was activism. No kidding. Okay. And so it was like all the philosophic traditions, all of the sciences, and all the areas of activism. That was the braid of my early experience. And so activism was animal rights work, environmental work, social justice work. And mm-hmm. so I got to see kind of the worst parts of the world and the most extreme, unnecessary kinds of suffering. Were your parents early. traveling around a lot? Were you being traipsed around the world there was to do this activist work? Some of that, mm-hmm. but we didn't have to go that far to find factory farms. <laughs> Point, right. And um, you know, then as I got a little bit older, I did go do some international frontline work. But getting to start to really dive into the metrics of ocean acidification and biodiversity loss and climate change and species extinction and the causes for those things. And one of the things that was really devastating for me early was because I was working across a lot of areas, I would see that there was a specific area that we'd be working on with certain organizations. The first one that really hit me was an elephant poaching project. Mm. And the solution to decrease the poaching at that particular area was putting up bigger fences around the preserves. Mm-hmm. to keep the poachers out and increase sentencing for poaching, which after a huge amount of work, it finally worked. And the elephant poaching did go down in that particular preserve. But the problem was the poverty of the people that had no solution other than poaching, the mindsets of people towards seeing animals as commodities, the economic system that created poverty in the first place, like none of that had changed. So the same poaching groups moved to start hunting the white rhino and the mountain gorilla. Mm-hmm. And because I was working on enough issues, I got to see that lateral displacement. Yeah, the problem just gets squeezed into another domain. Yeah. And so if, if you care about elephants, it was a success. If you care about quality of life comprehensively, it was, it was a failure. Right. And as I started to look at the whole picture, I got to see that almost all of the good work we were trying to do in the four benefit areas or in the nonprofit or in the government areas, mostly just displaced issues. Right. And the underlying causes continue to get worse. And so that's where I was also getting to take a systems theoretic mm-hmm. perspective, which mm-hmm. is understanding not just individual areas of science, but understanding universe, how do whole systems work, mm-hmm. interdisciplinary, and start applying it to activism and saying, what would it take to actually prevent the impending problems, solve the underlying basis of the existing mm-hmm. ones, and create fundamentally better world structures? Right. Fascinating. So you're, you're, you know, you're sitting on boards with world leaders and, you know, PhD triple PhDs. Do you have any formal education yourself besides your homeschooling? Like, do you have, did you go to get an MD or PhD or anything like that, like in the formal system? Kind of. Kind of. Most of the education that I have that's relevant didn't come through traditional training. And even the traditional academic training I did was very avant-garde kind of small schools that had mm-hmm. programs I was interested in. So I did undergrad in math and physics mm-hmm. at a small school called the Mauritius University where they were actually doing physics work yeah. that I was That's really interested TM in. Guy. Yeah, exactly. 
But they were doing very interesting work at the intersection of physics and consciousness. How does consciousness and physics, what is it, Mm -hmm. you know, how do they interact? And then graduate degrees for me were in, um, never did my dissertation, did Mm -hmm. my PhD, except dissertation in uh, psychology. Yeah. Okay. But again, I didn't bother because I was just, I was interested in the learning. Not I have a similar story. I have an ABD in leader, PhD in leadership that I yeah. never finished because when I went to Iraq, I looked at the whole, I had some distance and I looked at it and said, this isn't relevant, not right. worth me finishing. Yeah. Interesting. I feel you. Yeah, that yeah, makes sense. Okay. So before I talk, I want to get into the emergence project and some of your work there, but where did you come across the integral theory and Ken Wilbur and, and start to marry those? ideas in, or merge those ideas into your thinking processes. Mm-hmm. So some of the most influential topics for me growing up were systems science, mm-hmm. systems theory. And so this was the work of uh, Fritjof Capra mm-hmm. and you know all of the previous general systems, dynamics, mm-hmm. cybernetics, information mm-hmm. theory kind of people. And then also complexity theory. So the right. work of Stuart Kaufman, Santa Fe Institute, that kind mm-hmm. of work, uh, which is actually an upgrade to science itself, right? Mm. Which is when we're not just studying small variable systems where you can isolate a variable and control and you're studying very large variable systems where you can't isolate them, what is the right methodology for complex systems? Mm -hmm. And so I was very interested in not just understanding specific domains, but increasing the capability of understanding anything and then being able to have better lateral thinking. How do we cross-apply what we know in any area to other areas if it's cross-apply? applicable because they're underlying kind of generalized principles or metastructures. That's where I got into integral theory was Mm -hmm. looking at what are all the upgraded ways of knowing, right, epistemologies that can potentially lead to novel, valuable insights in any area and that can lead to better processes Mm -hmm. for, you know, coming to understand a topic. Okay. And so that led, I think, if I'm following your thinking and your own growth to the emergence project, which is about taking from, you know, all this disparate systems and complex, uh, all the knowledge around these things, and then trying to distill practical solutions, am I right there, or, or solutions that would mm-hmm. potentially have a more systemic impact as yeah. opposed to an isolated impact. So tell us about the Emergence Project and, and how that came about in your work yeah. there. So when I saw the displacement that happened, right, from trying to solve certain issues where we didn't address the interconnectivity and we didn't address the underlying causes deeply enough. That when was you say we, you mean we as a civilization. Correct. Got it. And that'll generally be the we that, yeah, that I use. Yeah, the big we, yeah. But I also saw that the, many of the core metrics regarding the integrity of the biosphere and our ability to keep existing on this planet were continuing to get worse despite the collective work of all positive intended projects. Mm-hmm. And getting worse heading towards points of irreversibility of you know, existential risk, right? Our, our species not being able to continue on a planet where we damage the life support systems too far. Let's pause there. You made a comment to me um, a couple months ago where you said that w- something like you believe that throughout all human history, we're at the point of time where we have the greatest existen- existential threat to our existence as a human race. By far. By far. Well, think about it. Nuclear weapons were the first existential technology that we got. Because if we're killing people with rocks or spears or guns, you can't destroy all people, right? You can't fundamentally destroy the biosphere. The technology is not strong enough. At least one side wins. Right. (laughs) Right. Which means half the population is still potentially there. Exactly. Interesting. And you can't, with axes, cut down 
all of the old growth forests in the world, right? You can't, with line fishing, overfish the oceans to the point of oceanic kind of collapse. Or, and so our increased population, but mostly our increased technology, right? Addressing, and technology increasing means increased power. Mm-hmm. So if we move from an ax to a D9 or slash and burn of forests that can take down an acre a second or dredge nets that can pull out 90% of the large fish species in the ocean in the last 100 years or, or nuclear technologies, the level of technology we have has made our ignorance of our interconnectedness with each other and with the biosphere no mm-hmm. longer in, you know, tenable. It's magnified it. Yeah. We magnified it to the place of being existential. Right. Where basically we either have to fundamentally change how we apply power or we stop existing soon. So just because technology has advanced rapidly or accelerated doesn't mean thinking systems or moral structures. Correct. So in other words, the race hasn't evolved to keep up with technology. This is Einstein's famous quote that it's yeah. you know become so evident that our technology has far surpassed our humanity. Right. One of the problems there is that science itself such a powerful system for understanding the physical world, the physical universe. And it's a, it is a applied philosophy, right? Which mm-hmm. is, it's a way of going about understanding, which has to do with scientific method, observation, hypothesis. But science is based on the idea that what is real is ob- observable, measurable, third-person stuff. Mm-hmm. Which means that consciousness, which is first-person, experienceable, yeah. non-measurable stuff, is not real just by definition. It's outside of the domain mm-hmm. of what science can address. Yeah. Science can look at neural correlates of if someone says they're experiencing a state, what is the EEG pattern? Mm-hmm. But if you look at the EEG pattern of someone, you still have no idea what it's actually like to be them. And so what that created was a split between ethics, which is concerned about the subjective experience, Mm -hmm. and science, which is our ability to have increasing mastery over the physical world. And Mm -hmm. so we've had a ramping of technology from a system, right? Technology is applied science, but a system that has no compass, a moral compass in terms of how it should be applied. Well, it's not just ignorant of it. It's that if we if we take physicalism, the idea, which is kind of the predominant philosophic system upon which science is usually based or derived, the idea that what's fundamentally real is physical stuff, and so consciousness is either not real at all, or it's a epiphenomena of neural networks and Mm -hmm. brains, Mm -hmm. but that couldn't then be causal. It couldn't affect physics, right? Mm -hmm. Couldn't affect brains and bodies. If we take that idea, not only is science unaware of ethics it says there are fundamentally no ethical systems that could be true Mm -hmm. that's been the kind of philosophic stance Mm -hmm. of the uncommensurability Mm -hmm. of science and and you know any kind of consciousness oriented Mm -hmm. study Mm -hmm. so when we have the system that's creating all the power and determining how we create our physical built world that not only doesn't have a compass but says no compasses are actually meaningful then the compass ends up being economics Mm -hmm. which is directing all the science and research mm-hmm. and the underlying philosophy behind how capitalism works is a you know neo-darwinian mm-hmm. kind of idea that is actually it it's not an adequate idea for the level of technology we have and we can see that from mm-hmm. all of the major crises we have mm-hmm. this is why the center for integral wisdom work is important mm-hmm. is we actually have to fundamentally upgrade our worldview right. in a way that is commensurate with science and includes but transcends science and can make ethics and science intercommensurate so we right. can actually have a formalized kind of ethics and existentialism that gets to be a basis for not just saying how does stuff work but also what should be right, right. i love that and you know most people are going huh 
because we have we still have the fundamental problem. It's nice to have an upgrade of understanding, yeah. but if the people who are at the ground level doing the work and executing tactics and strategies, even if you understand it, if you don't, if you haven't evolved yourself to where you own it, right? What I mean by that is you 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 feel it, you experience it, you know, you've elevated yourself to where you. This is much more than this concept, and I think right. that's a challenge. Like. You can have someone who believes something, but then go, they go and act a completely different way because their patterns and their emotionality and everything is stuck in a different stage of, of development. So where I'm going with this is it's nice to have the emergence project and new thinking, and it's nice to have the Center for Inner Wisdom and new thinking, but that doesn't mean it's going to change a single human being's consciousness mm-hmm. or evolve them unless they're actively involved in those organizations. So how do we fill that gap? Mm-hmm. How do we evolve? How do we evolve human consciousness at a global scale so that at least some tipping point? You know that Wilbur always talks about. There's ten percent. It's just a he, t- he says he just pulls the number out of thin air. Right. But w- w- how can we evolve consciousness? You know, I have theories about that. It, you know, through unbeatable mind training, that it, it requires active work. Because I've yeah. learned that through my martial arts and Navy SEAL and yoga traditions that. We've got to take responsibility for evolving ourselves through training and practices like breath and meditation and concentration and right, right. You know, engaging with human beings in common understanding yeah. or in perspective taking, those types of things. So, what sayeth you yeah. about this massive subject? Well, when when we ask how do we make a fundamentally better world, then we also ask how do we upgrade human consciousness, human experience, and patterns of behavior, they're the same question. Because mm-hmm. when we look at ocean acidification, it's caused by human action, right? Mm-hmm. When we look at overfishing and population issues and violence issues, these are all caused by human action. And human action is caused by all of our determinants of human behavior. Right. And so if we want to... But the, the, okay, let me stop there because gonna, we're going to keep probing here. I get, so if new knowledge comes down and says, okay, these systems, the systemic thinking says, okay, now we can't, we can't fish the oceans like we have because it's destroying the ocean. We can't chop down the rainforest the way we have. Because and so, you know, whoever the intelligent body of yeah. governmental organization at the time, whether it's the United States or the United Nations, says, okay, you can't do that anymore. It's illegal. Yeah, won't work. That's not going to work, right? Because right. that's the old, that's the, the 21st top-down century top-down approach right. has already failed. And so what we're looking at is how do we facilitate self-organizing, self-governance, right? How do we facilitate right. a bottom-up evolution of understanding consciousness and better predisposition of behavior? Right. So if you have enlightened law, no matter how, how enlightened the people were that developed it, and then you try and impose it by force on people who don't understand it, want and agree with it, then you get dissent, back to the and you have authoritarianism. Testing, right? Exactly. And so the or question, Donald Trump's wall you know, along the Mexican border. I wouldn't say that was enlightened law to begin with. <laughs> Good <point>. um, But <laughs> exactly. So if we look at the elephant tusk kind of scenario, what would it take to have no one want to have the elephant tusks? Right. And that means economic solutions where nobody was in the poverty that needed that. It means mindset or shifts and evolution. where no one was buying it because both they understood. Yeah. Right. And so that we look at, this involves changes in macroeconomics. It, look, it involves changes in education and worldview, like deeper changes, deeper right. structural changes. But we have the situation where the elephant is worth more dead than alive. In fact, 
economically, it's not worth anything alive on anyone's balance sheet. That's amazing. Yeah. But dead, those tusks are worth a, a meaningful amount. And the whale dead is a million dollars on a Japanese fishing boat, but alive in the ocean is not worth anything to anyone, even if it's serving a role in keeping the Except whole planet. Its, its children and its family. But the commons, and the commons has a balance sheet that we are okay just stealing from. That's actually core to the whole idea of how we do capitalism. Right. And so that's the linear approach. There's no systemic accounting. systemic accounting to the, the way we, we handle economics. When we're basically stealing from the commons and then externalizing our waste there, mm-hmm. but there's a very small number of us, we, the earth can support it. Right. And there's a large number with a large level of ability to mine. And fish. most experts say that number was about a billion people. Well, pre-industrial revolution, before we had the ability to start extracting from the savings accounts of the planet, it was half a billion. Half a billion, okay. Yeah. And then our population boom after that was based on unrenewable extraction of savings accounts. And that's accounts. been only 150 years, right? Yeah. yeah, 1815 was when we hit a billion people for okay. the first so time. 200 years. Yeah. And so there's, how do we evolve human consciousness? Well, there's things that we need to do in each sector. There's evolving human worldview. There's evolving the, the social systems themselves. Imagine if economics was such that the incentive of every agent economically was perfectly aligned with the well-being of every other agent and of the commons. We had a different kind of economic measurement system, mm-hmm. metric system, where you couldn't externalize harm somewhere else in the form of pollution that's going into the air or mm-hmm. to the water or killing and commoditizing something. But the, the omnipositive metrics of systemic benefit to everyone were how you profited. Mm-hmm. It's a fundamentally different system. It's not communism or socialism or capitalism. It's systems that we are just getting yeah. the tooling ability to do that we never had. Right. But then you're actually having economics be a tool of evolution of consciousness in mass. Mm-hmm. Right? Yeah. All the social systems. Same with we have to fundamentally upgrade the infrastructure that ends up affecting not only the planet, but how it affects human consciousness. But there's also things at an individual level. And your work is focused there. Yeah. Now, one of the things that there's a lot of fear about in the world, even amongst people who are having these conversations, is that we've run out of time and that we can't get there or we won't get there without a major collapse, like a systemic collapse, either in food production or or all the above. You know, it could be any one of five or six different trigger points. You know, it could be influenza, flu, or Zika virus, or uh, nuclear war between Russia and the United States, or, you know what I mean, collapse of the ocean, whatever. What is your view on that? Do you think we're past the point of a return or whether we have the ability to pull ourselves out of this or is it just a race against time and who knows? James Lovelock is a guy who, a uh, geobiologist who developed the Gaia hypothesis, the idea that the earth is actually an adaptive system, yeah. can actually self-regulate and adapt. And he's been looking at biosphere changes across maybe a longer period of time and with more data than almost anyone. And uh, in 2008, he said we had passed the tipping points for uh, major biosphere damage that we had maybe 50 years before civilization collapsed. Without radical change. If, you mean, if we went He along just said we passed the tipping points. Right? Regardless Which, of what happened in the future. Right. And then in 2012, he was asked, do you still agree with that? And he said, it's going faster than I had modeled. Now, when he was kind of probed a little bit deeper, and he holds a view that's harder than some other people's views, mm-hmm. but he said, 
if we did everything technologically right right now, we could shift it, but there's no indication that we have the, the right economic or political or individual will to do that. Because mm -hmm. we don't need to just emit a little bit less CO2 this year than last mm -hmm. year. We need to emit less than none right away, meaning mm -hmm. we're getting into active sequestering. Mm -hmm. Which technologically, we actually have the technology to do. The only reason Economics. why coal is cheaper in some places is because all of the cost is externalized to the environment in the form of the CO2 and the mercury and the mountaintop mm -hmm. removal mining. If you actually had to pay for the cost of leaving the commons neutral, the cost of coal would go up four orders of magnitude and solar would have reached grid parity the moment it was emitted. Interesting. Yeah. And so this is where you actually have to shift things like macroeconomics to be able to shift technologies right. within it. Right. Now we're already fortunately at the point that the technology have gotten efficient enough they're going to take over anyways. Do I believe it is too late? No. Do I believe that it might be too late? Yes. I think that the big wild card that, what, what was his name? Love, Lovelace? Lovelock. Lovelock could not foresee was artificial intelligence, you know, and, and the ability of AI systems and, and like nanobots and the convergence of all these accelerating technologies to like radically shift it yeah. in an in a accelerating yeah. pace in the opposite direction. For, for instance, yeah. you know, I get all these alerts from my friend Peter Diamandis about what's new breaking technologies and stuff like that. And Oh, by the way, the biggest obstacle to the deployment of these technologies is our own government, yeah. right? Our own United States government and, of course, European as well. So a lot of these things are still kind of in the laboratory or being tested in third world countries where they don't have the regulations. But, you know, they've got a nanobot that can extract carbon dioxide yeah. from the ocean and replace it with oxygen. And so we deploy, I don't know how you deploy it, but you deploy these little nanobots, who cleans the ocean up, right? It's, it's theoretically possible, and right with the right amount of investment in it, we could do that. And so if you have a hundred of these key new emerging technologies, which are powered by an artificial system and nanotechnology, it's possible that we could right. dramatically alter the, you know, the equation. Well, this is the deal with... That's the utopian view, I guess, I, you know. Well, it, I like to have that in mind, the mindset that that's possible. It opens up it's possibilities. Right. So exponential technology, right? Technology that where the tools create the ability to build more and bigger tools faster. And specifically, we see that with computing because right. computing helps give us the knowledge to know how to do more computing. And right. so you get these exponential curves. Right. So Diamandis and Kurzweil and Singularity University are focused on all of the exponential curves right. in any kind of technology. That increased and it's something that's unique to get about exponential growth as opposed to any other kind of growth is it means that you have so much more growth per each year once you get to those inflection points where we're at than we had through the longest periods of right. time that our adaptation cycles have to increase rapidly or they can't even begin to understand it and that our intuitions and best practices from the past become obsolete faster and faster. Mm -hmm. So this is a big deal, right? Yeah. And those exponential technologies can both solve major problems and cause major problems. Because mm -hmm. it's mm -hmm. just like, you know, we were mentioning mm -hmm. nuclear was an exponential, it was a major technology. It was the first one that was existential. If we used it wrong, we could actually take ourselves out as a species. Mm -hmm. We have a lot of existential tech now, mm -hmm. right? With biotech and nanotech, we have life-ending applications. But we also have life-healing applications, which is why... We do have to rebuild infrastructure from scratch using the best technologies, but applied for the best things. Right. Which means no more externalization of harm anywhere. Which right. means a worldview shift where right. we recognize that on this little bitty biosphere, as powerful as we are, there, there is no place called away where we can put trash or where we can mine unconscionably or mm -hmm. where we can war and it's just okay because it's away. Do you think that that shift, 
at the scale that we're talking about will only happen when humans are augmented with artificial intelligence? No. That's one possibility. Not necessary. We already see people who have, in your world-centric warrior program, right? right? We see people with a world-centric worldview who recognize like, that it's impossible for the liver to advantage itself meaningfully at the expense of a kidney in an interconnected body where right. the kidneys die and the liver dies. Well, it's actually impossible for any of us to advantage ourselves meaningfully at the expense of part of the biosphere that we're all interdependent with. Mm, And when we start getting how interconnected it is, we stop focusing on competitive advantage and start Mm -hmm. focusing on systemic advantage. And so we don't need AI to do that. We can see that all the people who actually pay the most attention to how systems work already get there. there, So then it's how do we facilitate the evolution of a world-centric worldview? And then corresponding economic systems that can then implement the infrastructural systems right. that are world-centric benefit, right? right? It's a world-level balance sheet we're optimizing for, rather right. than optimizing for individual balance sheets at the cost of the world balance yeah. sheet. I think it's ironic that the same set of trends that led to us getting to this, you know, what you call existential crisis, has also allowed the race to, for the first time, have a world-centric, a potential to have a world-centric point of view. And so mass transport, all this stuff, mass transportation, global shipping, and the internet, all arose in the last 40 years. 40 years. So we're talking about earlier how 200 years ago, population was 500 million, and now it's 7.5 billion. 200 years. You know, in the duration of the human race, obviously, that's just a flick of an eyeball. And in the last 40 years, we've gone from local to global, right. which is one reason there's such a push back against globalization right now with all the you know, local thinking and tribalism, which never went away. But I guess my point is that the Internet, right, the Internet of Things, the Internet of People, cross-border collaboration, the ability for you and I to get an airplane and be in Istanbul tomorrow... It's stunning the yeah. change that that's brought to the human race. And what we've seen, and you know, from my practices in, in yoga and uh, martial arts, you know, I've seen, and teaching Navy SEALs yoga, I've seen a dramatic shift in the last 10 years even in the languaging and the, the type of people who I'm training and their level of awareness. I'm actually starting to now train SEAL candidates who are world-centric yeah. when they come to me. Or as soon as we start having the conversation, check, I can tell that they're there, right? Whereas seven or eight years ago, you know, if I mentioned the word yoga, the eyes would start crossing, right? And so my sense is that it's happening already. And that's the, you know, the the human spirit or human consciousness compulsion to evolve itself. Well, I think it got stuck, right? And then all of a sudden with the internet and the opening up of global travel and all this stuff and the conversation, now it's spidering out and expanding. And the systems that have been created in the 21st century are obviously not capable of holding that together. So we're in one of the most challenging and scary and risky periods of history for a lot of reasons. And opportune. And opportune, right. So if you look at any kind of technology, you can go with old technology, right? You You can use a hammer to build houses you can also mm. use a hammer to beat somebody, right? Mm. Like any yeah. technology can have applications because it's an extension of our ability. Right. And we can do wonderful or shitty things, right? So we used to say in the SEALs, you know, that the guns don't kill people, people kill people. Yeah. <laughs> right. 
just a tool. And I'm not saying that the technology is value agnostic. Some technology does intrinsically move things in particular directions. But the foundational kinds of technological capability are just going to empower human choice. Mm -hmm. And then the question is, what's conditioning the basis for how choice, how is, choice made? is made? Yeah. And so as we get exponential technology that's that much more powerful, that much quicker, where we're also that much less used to how to use it, we have the ability for much better and much worse potentials with it at the same time. Right. And so we see right now some metrics in the world that are getting exponentially worse, like we talked about. We see others that are getting exponentially better. And Diamandis famously mm -hmm. talks about the things that are getting exponentially better as a result of positive application of right, tech. Right, like we live in the most abundant period of human history. Right. Yet you turn on the network news and it seems like the world's falling apart. Or and if then, you really look at the biospheric effects of the way we have been using technology and infrastructure, right? Mm -hmm. And so if things are getting exponentially better and worse at the same time, it means the current system is destabilizing. Right. And we are moving towards either the end of that system and a drop down, which is some of the, the catastrophic Collapse, possibilities, yeah. or the emergence of a fundamentally higher order system. Because what's getting better are the capabilities, the parts that if we repurpose them with a new whole, a new worldview, a new set of macro structures, become not just a kind of evolutionary shift on a gradient, right, but an actual discrete jump up. Mm -hmm. And we're right at the brink of the ability for a discrete shift in evolution. Are you ready to start or to reboot your journey toward personal mastery? If so, I'd like to invite you to join me at the fifth annual Unbeatable Mind Retreat in San Diego, California on December 2nd to 4th. For three action-packed days, we're going to be learning and growing from leading wellness, fitness, and leadership experts such as Ben Greenfield, Jesse Itler, Rob Wolf, and Jimmy Chin, among others. The Unbeatable Mind team and I will also work with you on creating an action plan to help set you on the path for achieving breakthroughs in areas such as your health, fitness, relationships, business, finances, and more. You'll also have a chance to learn new skills to refine your physical and mental training with boot camp workouts, Kokoro yoga, breath empowerment, and other activities, including a charity wad benefiting the Christopher Reeve and our own Courage Foundation. Now, last year's event was sold out, so don't wait to register if this excites you. Make 2017 your best year ever by a long shot and join me at the Unbeatable Mind Retreat. For more information, go to www.retreat.unbeatablemind.com. That's www.retreat.unbeatablemind.com. Hoo-yah! The general trend throughout human history is the holarchic evolution. Transcend and include what came before, and that's the vision that you're talking about. But you, you see these glorious moments in history where that didn't work, right? Atlantis <laughs> didn't work. Um, the island tribe, um, the name is escaping me, that just disappeared from the face of the earth. Mm -hmm. Didn't work. Population, like, they consumed themselves out of existence. Yeah. And so I guess, you know, I'm just kind of reaffirming our point is like, it could, it could go in either direction. I hate, I'm not trying to be the negative right. nanny here, but I'm trying to provide some balance to, you know, to where we're going with this conversation is, in my opinion, right, and then you share this because of your work, it's not acceptable for the global population to sit back and wait for us to solve it. Correct. It's not acceptable. It has to be everybody all in. Correct. Right? We all have to step up into our sheepdog skins and, you know, act world-centrically and start making different decisions. 
because the or else is too right. scary or too, uh, I guess, apocalyptic to even. When you look there, at right? you look at the work you're doing and how many people you have trained to be more effective and more capable at so many things, and nobody in childhood said, "All right, we're training you to be part of the solution," but your life brought you to that. Right. Yeah. You look at what Elon is doing yeah. and, you know, take a, a single person who's saying, I'm just going to take responsibility for climate change. And that's not being completely having a stand only on one planet. Mm-hmm. And you look at what and, it, and he wasn't trained for that. It was just, at just some, happened. something yeah. happened to start to step up to take more responsibility and more agency for a larger collective whole. It's actually important that just like all ancient traditions want people to think about their own eminent death to really use their time here well, it's mm-hmm. important to think about the real possibility of eminent collapse. Because mm-hmm. the idea that you can just focus on your little life and have a definition of success for you that isn't a definition of success for everybody, it's a misnomer. That concept is no yeah. longer so relevant. So we've got to shake people up out of that, that, right? that point of view, because that's still a prevailing wisdom. I just get up and go to work as long as I mind my own business and you know all this stuff that I see and hear about is just, you know, it's always been there. Which I is, hear that all the time. It's always been... Right. There's always been war. There's always been doomsday. Yeah. And this time, I believe, is different. It is. There haven't always been 7 billion people. Right. There hasn't always been an ocean mostly fished out at the end of the ability to do it. We, we haven't always had exponential technologies to empower bad decisions if we make them. Right. So it is different. It is different. So it's, uh, and it's also different because we haven't had the exponential technologies to make better solutions possible. Right. We have the ability now, like technological automation is happening, robotic automation. So either we get to automate the shittiest jobs and help everyone step up, create fundamentally better kinds of economic systems, or automate the shittiest jobs, concentrate that wealth at the top even more and have even greater economic disparity. disparity right. right? It's going to happen. Which way do we steer it? Mm-hmm. We, we, have, we never had the ability to inventory all the world's resources. Now with the Internet of Things and ubiquitous sensors, we can actually create a real-time balance sheet of the commons, know all of uh, the material resources available, inventory all the areas that we need to allocate resource to, and be able to look at how to best allocate all the world's resources we, we to all the needs. assign a blockchain code to every single resource in, in the known world. So we never had so blockchain before. Right? But we have the ability to do things like that. Right. Data science, the internet, the, the internet of things has given us the ability to do f- things that Karl Marx or Adam Smith could have never thought about. Right. Which means that the foundational axioms have to be rethought mm-hmm. because they're obsolete now. Right. Uh, knowing full well that talking about it and, and thinking about it in think tanks is only part of the solution. What's Daniel doing these days through the Neurohacker Network to, mm-hmm. or collected to... Uh, to be part of a tactical solution. Yeah. Well, there's, there's this classic question of, are individuals conditioned by the world they're born into, which we know is a it's part of the part truth. Of the truth yeah. So do we want to work on making better social systems, you know, infrastructure, social structure, to condition people better statistically, which is, the answer is yes, right? right. Communism and the democratic platform mostly focus there. Or do individuals self-direct to various degrees and then create the commons, right? Create mm-hmm. the built world. And so we want to empower individual agency. Mm-hmm. And capitalism and the Republican platform are focused. They're both true. They're mm-hmm. both true. They're interfecting, and there's no dichotomy between those. We want to make better collective environments, and we want to make more agentic humans, right? Mm-hmm. We want to make environments that condition individuals better and individuals that are more resilient to any environment, right? Correct. So it's not an either-or. It's a it's both. Not. And exactly. they both need to emerge in a more healthy manner. 
And so on the individual side, like your work is focused on how do we evolve people who have more emotional resilience, more impulse control, more mental toughness, more so that they can make better decisions, right. even in the face of hard environments, right? Mm-hmm. Your whole world was the hardest environments that existed. Right. And how do we still make really good decisions? Mm-hmm. Neurohacker Collective is focused on that from the side of view of inventorying all of the technologies. And this is both processes, like things that you, that you teach, whether breath processes, meditation, psychotherapeutic, mm-hmm. you know, training, mm-hmm. and also physical technologies. We're talking about at an individual level, not, right. Right, not a system. Correct. Okay. And so we look at also the technology side of everything from transcranial stimulation to genomic solutions to biochemical solutions mm-hmm. to using technology to meditate better, like EEG neurofeedback, mm-hmm. and saying how can we use our accelerating technology to evolve ourselves individually faster mm. better more comprehensively okay so and you're and with the by virtue of the name neuro hacker and being a collective mm-hmm. it sounds to me like you're starting that journey by trying to enhance neurological processing power yeah and and so now we're getting into the field the emergence field of neurotropics right neurotropics are one neurotropics of is one one of the one of the categories that we okay. work in and so when we say neurohacker, what we're talking about is how do we understand how the brain and nervous system and the whole physiology that it lives within, how do they work in relationship with consciousness better? So we're really right. looking at hacking the mind-brain interface. Right. right. So first and third quadrant using the Wilberian AQAL system. Yeah, the so, two upper quadrants yeah, the, primarily, up, yeah, right? Yeah. Upper left, upper right. And the goal there is <coughs> everything from whether it's increasing cognitive capabilities like short-term memory, speed of memory, long-term memory, digit span, right? Mm -hmm. Also increasing focus, attention span, processing, analytic capabilities, synthetic capabilities, creative, Mm -hmm. intuitive, right? How do we increase those kinds of cognitive capabilities? By understanding the neurologic hardware that Mm -hmm. mediates those capabilities Mm -hmm. and then being able to say, how can we help upregulate the homeostatic capacity, the robustness of those physiologic pathways so they can actually mediate those capabilities better. So let me use it on Beal Mind in layman's terms. So in the subjective realm, we're yeah. going to use something like a meditative practice, yeah. let's say a concentration practice, and that practice is going to create some neuroplastic shifts in my brain structure, right, which are going to allow me to focus better. Yeah. And over time, maybe an epigenetic shift in me which is going to make it a permanent state stage condition of change. Yep. And what you're saying is to augment that, let's take a look at the whole systemic organization of what's going on in the brain biology system. And there's potentially some methodologies or you know hacks, even though I have an issue with that word. There's some ways to what you term upregulate, to change, to evolve, to improve it. And so that together, the first and the third quadrant, the objective and the subjective are supporting each other in a mutually upward spiral of virtuous growth. Yeah, and just just to speak to it, we have an issue with many interpretations of the word hack as well. When you think about hacking Big Brother, in which the hacker ethos largely did. We're not trying to say that nature is big brother and we're trying to beat it, right? We're, mm-hmm. We have a very different stance. Yeah, usually that doesn't work very well. It doesn't at nature all. Nature always wins. How do we understand and participate okay. with? But one of the other aspects of kind of the hacker ethos was that it took a lot more work to program the security system than it did to figure out how to break into it, right? It was right. also largely how do we identify ways of getting some new behavior out of the system that we hadn't known was possible before 
where we have the least amount of input creating the most amount of output. Okay. And so we're focused on increased efficiency and, and efficacy mm-hmm. from what had been, bef- mm-hmm. what had been possible before. Mm-hmm. But so when you're doing your focus meditation, for instance, and we look at what's happening neurologically, we can see that there are certain brainwave states that are involved. And then we can say, well, we can actually measure your brainwaves, feed that back to you with a kind of biofeedback and train you how to meditate faster. Right. We can realize that part of your focus is being mediated by certain neurotransmitters. Acetylcholine is doing parts of it. Glutamate is doing other parts of it. Catecholamines are doing other parts. And we can say, can we upregulate the body and brain's ability to both produce and regulate those chemistries? Not just upregulate them where they're fixed, right? But upregulate your body's own regulatory capacity. So teaching your body to fish, just not throwing in the yeah. bone. I mean, it's very, when you're working out, you're upregulating capacity, right? It's right. not just that that muscle's on all the time, but it has the ability to be more on when engaged. Yeah. So let's use, you know, you use the bodybuilding kind of analogy with me. So let's use that analogy to help people understand how a new, nootropic is working on the brain like a HGH or some supplementation for a bodybuilder sure. is working. Yeah. So if, if a bodybuilder was just taking creatine without working out, they're not going to get increased muscle growth, you know, or if they're taking just branch chain or just protein. But if they are working out enough that their dietary intake of those nutrients is actually the limiting factor, Mm. and then they increase the bandwidth of the rate limiting factor, then the whole system can move further forward. So it's a synergy between how much stimulus is happening to the muscle and how much nutrients are available to repair it and the detox capability and the sleep, right? And the hormones that are involved in metabolism, catabolism, mm-hmm. anabolism, right? So it's, it's the right synergy of those things coming together and saying, where are the limiting factors and being able to upregulate those? And so that's true for muscle development. It's true for cognitive capability. It's true for meditation. It's true for mm. a lot of things. And so if someone were to take nootropics that say we're going to increase some aspect of neurochemical function, but then not actually practice using their mind f- in any disciplined kinds of ways or for, for any meaningful activity, you're going to get a limited effect. Mm-hmm. And I mean, anyone can notice they can take caffeine or Adderall and have an effect. Mm-hmm. They can similarly not take anything and focus and you know, study more, learn more, mm-hmm. meditate more, and mm-hmm. have an effect. But if you combine those things, you can have meaningful synergies of effects. Fascinating. So meditation... They're meant to be done together. The, yeah. the practices and the supplementation through nootropics is what creates the magic. Just taking the nootropic might help an executive be more focused in a meeting, right? Maybe help it them stay on does. track, yeah. be, you know, access the flow state. But what we're talking about and your mission is really to help use these tools and comp- complement with right. or in co- coordination or concert with well-known and emergent practices and things like, you know, what Peak Brain Institute is doing with yeah. biofeedback to really evolve the brain consciousness system. Well, and the reason that if, you know, if you go to our site, you have a look and you'll see that what's available right now to the public is a very comprehensive kind of nootropic cognitive enhancement nutraceutical. There's a lot of other technologies we're working on. It's just if they're actually addressing anything in a more medical direction, there's a lot of science and a lot of FDA yeah. things before we can get them out. Right. Um, and you got to start somewhere. And so this was a way that we could start providing value. To so you have an initial product in the market that's called Qualia. Right. Qualia, okay. But we're also working very deeply on 
transcranial stimulation technologies, right. on microbiomic solutions, on many things. But what's cool about a nootropic, a really well-formulated one, and we you know, had looked at the whole field of nootropics in a lot of depth, and there are some things that were good, but there was nothing that did what we really wanted to see mm -hmm. happen, which was, mm -hmm. again, a kind of comprehensive whole systems, not approach to just certain neurotransmitters or certain receptor sites mm -hmm. or certain transporter proteins, but all of the things that are meaningfully involved in rate limiting in cognitive capacity upregulation mm -hmm. mm -hmm. in a way that doesn't produce downregulation or dependence because rather than doing an external override of an internal regulatory system, we're actually supporting the internal regulatory systems. Mm -hmm. So you're saying a lot of the nootropics on the market are nootropics in brand name only or in just, or they're so limited in their scope yeah. that they might have a negative effect? Or well, let's, let's say we take people using off-label smart drugs, like mm. Adderall or, I mean, there's so, so many Adderall is considered drugs, a nootropic. No. Oh, Nootropic generally means something that increases some aspect of cognitive function beyond someone's normal baseline mm -hmm. without negative side effect, which is why mm -hmm. it's kind of this like magically wonderful term to yeah. the degree we can achieve it. Smart drug typically means some pharmaceutical that was for narcolepsy or ADD or some other purpose that's then being used for off-label purposes. I see. Uh, and it can increase some aspect of cognitive function, but it's probably going to have side effects. And those are, those are that's a chemical, right? That's not a natural occurring substance. Well, nootropics can be chemicals or naturally occurring substances. We're not so much focused here on whether we extracted it from a plant or whether we synthesized it. We're focused on what is the actual effect that it has Got on it. physiology. So your qualia, does it have both synthetic and natural ingredients? Okay, yeah, interesting. In general, we're oriented towards naturally derived things because we have a whole evolutionary history with them. Right. There's a lot of synergistic compounds that are there. Mm -hmm. But there are times where there are synthetic compounds that we've developed that have really wonderful properties that are very intercommensurate with human biology mm -hmm. and don't have any indication of meaningful side effects and actually have a lot of you know, neuroprotection, positive kind of upregulation. So where, for instance? So the, the primary family of chemicals that we think of when we think about nootropics are the racetams. Paracetam mm. was the first one, then there's many other racetams, and they primarily upregulate the uptake of acetylcholine. Mm. Uh, they do a number of things, but the upregulation of the NMDA receptor sites, mm -hmm. uptake of acetylcholine in the postsynaptic neuron, that's their primary thing. Mm -hmm. And then ampicines primarily upregulate glutamate uptake mm -hmm. on the ampicine receptors. I'm not in my head pretending that I know what you're talking about. So these are basically things. categories of chemicals that increase some aspect of neurotransmission. Mm -hmm. And we've got, on some of these, 50 years of significant data showing that they're extremely well tolerated and that in addition to actually upregulating some aspects of human experience that are very meaningful, they've actually got physiologic benefits as well, hmm. right? Neuroprotective against uh, oxidative damage in the brain, against glutamate excitotoxicity, against mm -hmm. different things like that. So again, we're, we are technologists. We embrace technology. Mm -hmm. We just want to see right use of it. Yeah, so yeah. we believe that natural. natural chemicals can be very toxic to you, mm -hmm. right? Hemlock is natural. Right. And, and there are synthetic chemicals that used rightly can be beneficial. Right. So we're not fun. Our idea is that there is nothing not natural. If it exists in universe, it is part of universe. Mm -hmm. And nature is the whole thing. So what we're interested in is do we understand what nature is doing well enough that any interventions that we have are aligned with its homeostatic capability rather than not? Yeah, interesting. So a two-part question, because I want to, uh, you know, this idea of creating a substance that can, you know, 
hack in and help us improve our cognition and our focus and our concentration and all these other things. Like the, the list of benefits that you list uh, for quality on your website are, are almost sound too good to be true. But then what's mo- most important is you, the list of the ingredients and how they act together mm-hmm. is stunning in scope and breadth. Mm-hmm. And you put it all out there f- for all your competitors to see. Why did you do that? Yeah, so we deeply embrace the yeah. open source ethos. Right. And so our goal is to actually make the best technologies that can meaningfully enhance people's lives available to everybody. Interesting. So right now, for instance, our product is expensive. It's expensive because the cost to us is ridiculously expensive. Mm-hmm. We're working on getting the price down with economy of scale, but how much we control the parts per million of any kind of uh, pollutant that's in there is way outside of traditional industry standards. Mm-hmm. The way we uh, control for form, purity, you know, so many things. And so it's just that, and the total number of grams of product, the exoticness of the ingredients. Our goal was, if we're not trying to say we need to have something that can be $40 in price, like I'm just unconstrained, what's the best thing we can actually do? And so... Um, so you're... you're Quali is, is the Lamborghini of Nootropics. At this New, point. At this point. And we're continuously studying and evolving and refining the process. Mm-hmm. We're, you know, in both internal preclinical trials and in clinical trials and in more complex forms of trial that go beyond what a clinical can mm-hmm. do. Um, but our goal was we want this to be available to everyone. We're making it available as the highest quality we can, at, you know, as, as affordably as we can. And if anyone else can do a better job, we want them to. Mm -hmm. And our unique value proposition isn't that we kept knowledge that's useful secret, it's that we actually do a good job at executing on what we've learned, and we're continuing to learn and iterate. So, I I love, by the way, that some of the most successful social entrepreneurs, you you invoke Elon Musk names, he's got godlike status in the entrepreneur community, embrace this shared open source. You know, he's giving his battery technology to the world because he wants people to improve upon it because he knows it's going to be a virtuous loop back to his, his thinking. That's fascinating. And, you know, our goal is to continue to advance our own novel science, but also to synthesize all the great science that's happening anywhere. So Mm -hmm. we've got partners at many different um, universities that have some of the best neuroscience departments in the world, and also in private sector at many different companies. So it's like part of why we call it a collective is our goal is not just creating, but also curating Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. the very best technologies for anything, whether we're talking about sleep, anxiety, pain, cognitive, anything that's at the mind-brain interface, and making them available to people because it's very hard for most people to be able to ascertain if something's actually going to be good or not. And then of the thousand things that can affect cognition or anxiety or sleep that all have some clinical support, which one's most relevant to them based on what's actually going on in their underlying regulatory process. Mm -hmm. So we're... You know, we're actually working on building a kind of AI assessment and recommendation engine that can then take all of the technologies and knowing what pathways they work with and gaining more and more data about individuals, customize recommendations to put people on the front end of So personalized curves. neurotropics, like personalized not, nutrition, that's a huge emergent field as well. Personalized neurotech. Neurotech. So it'll go beyond neurotropics into anything neurotech. No kidding. Yeah. Fascinating. So before I move on from Qualia, is there a place, because I, I just want to disclose folks that I've been trying this product. I think it's fantastic. Definitely, you know, it's been about three months now, I think, right? Yeah. And I'm definitely experiencing some positive benefits from it. 
And so I intend to continue using it. I'm not a big supplementation guy. Most right. people know I'm kind of very much, you know, warrior-esque in that yeah. I don't like a lot of gadgets and I don't like to have to take a lot of things because they run out and then you have to worry about, I don't know, I have to go buy another set or whatever. And it's expensive. But um, if there's one thing that I won't do without now, it's become the qualia. I can let my fish oil run out and I can let my, you know, my multivitamins run out. But I don't want to let the quality run out. That's extraordinary, right? For me to to kind of get to that point where I'm like, wow, this is cool. So I wanted to put that out there that I do endorse this product. I think it's fantastic. So where can people find out about it? And then I want to move on, you know, so it doesn't sound like a yeah. product bitch here. But yeah, I yeah. think people, my community needs to know about this. Like, I've, there's a few things that are cutting edge that I think are really cool. This is one of them. My ample is another. I've already talked about uh, no foods, non bread, mm-hmm. bread. There's another one that's going to, you know, potential to change like major things at any rate. Yeah. What is it? Is it qualia.com or neurohacker? Neurohacker.com. Neurohacker.com. Yeah. So okay. if you go to neurohacker.com, you can read about the formulation, our kind of approach to science, about the product. And you can also see on the ethos page uh, some description of the future things that we'll be bringing up. But the site is mostly focused on qualia right now since that's the main public offering. Got it. And as we continue to have more offerings, they'll be on the same site. Awesome. So what's next for you? Like, what's the next piece of the puzzle for you? With Neurohacker? Well, with, let's start with Neurohacker and then yeah. for Daniel. What's emerging for you? So the next thing that we're doing from a kind of technology product point of view with, with Neurohacker is making customized versions of Qualia, which we did originally. We just can't do that at scale very well because right. it was based on blood labs and genome assessment and et cetera. So we're building the underlying technology to actually do more customized okay, stacks at scale. for that study. Thanks. Yes. And bef- we need the w- world-centric warrior version. Well, we will. For hardcore athletes and warriors. And a generalized upregulation of cognitive capacity is very different than optimizations for certain purposes, where if you're in a, a battle-like environment, you might not want em- empathy to be upregulated. You might not be as interested in so certain functions. Minimize right? the oxytocin component. <laughs> so realistically, if someone is wanting upregulated capability to do art versus to code versus to do athletics, they're not identical. Really? Okay. And then in different physiologies, they're not going to be identical. Mm-hmm. And so the next version that we're working on is where there's just a handful of different versions for different purposes right. and different physiologic phenotypes. Next after that is we are working on the ability for people to actually upload labs. Mm. So blood labs, genetics, motion tracker, sleep tracker, mm-hmm. any kind of biometric, as well as psychometric assessments mm. to gain a better picture of what's going on with them and then be able to have customized recommendations based on that. And then we're also working on, like I said, moving into these other technology verticals and other purposes like mm-hmm. sleep. And Would you come pain. out with actual technical products like apps and like, what was the name of the thing that I put on my head? The, uh, Virtual reality. Not VR, but like the, it, it was a brain interface device, one of the early versions of it. Help me out. What do I call that? You mean, oh, the Muse. The yeah, Muse. Yeah, I yeah. knew you were going to come up with this. So the Muse, so stuff like that. We, we are working on hardware tech and software tech. Software is like, say someone's in an AR, VR environment, mm-hmm. and we actually can develop software that helps brain training. Uh, so we are working in, in that space. 
we're also working in hardware tech for neurotech that's mm -hmm. outside of the biochemical space, right? Mm -hmm. So you've got biochemical and biologic microbiomic solutions mm -hmm. as well as other kinds of hardware tech. So mm -hmm. we're working in all those spaces, both in terms of seeing things that partners are doing that we really like, helping them, and then curating their technologies, mm -hmm. as well as developing novel technologies. So you don't have to develop it all yourself. You're we gonna, don't. You're going to take the best of yeah. breed and, and integrate with it. And them. this is a model that we actually really Is there a platform in. approach to this that, yeah. that's evolving? Are you going to become a... You know, do you think Neurohacker Collective could become a platform that other technologies that's can play into? Yeah. And, but rather than you know, just people search through so many things and still not know what's going to be most relevant where it's, you know, just Amazon with stars. Mm -hmm. The ability to have a recommendation engine that is based on deep understanding of the underlying mechanics that they're trying to affect and mm -hmm. personalized info about them is where we're, where we're going. Okay. And how about yourself personally? Like, where are you heading? What's next for you? I mean, you're going to end up back at the big picture systemic because you're so passionate about it or yep. stay down in the company Weed level. They work yeah. together. We we actually initiated Neurohacker kind of out of the emergence project to address one part of evolving the human condition, mm -hmm. which is are there basically predispositions for anxiety that are just at the software level, just psychologic trauma? Yeah, there are. And you address those through the right kinds of psychotherapeutic processes. Mm -hmm. But are there predispositions for anxiety that are physiologic and that have to be addressed physiologically? or predispositions for psychopathy, right? Mm -hmm. For low empathy or for increased violence, yeah. Mm -hmm. There are physiologic predispositions for states of suffering and mm -hmm. states of shitty behavior. Mm -hmm. And so we wanted to work on the physiology side of predisposing, be, being able to support healthier, more well-integrated, happier, more capable, positively capable humans. That obviously then works in conjunction with training, mm -hmm. right? Mm -hmm. Mind, brain, body training and works in conjunction with the collective areas of social systems and infrastructure. And so Neurohacker is actually directly a part of that larger goal, Makes which sense. is how do we support evolved humans that are capable of being agents of change. Right. Terrific. Wow. Well, I stand by as well as the Unveil My Community to support you in your efforts. And uh, probably the simplest way we'll do that is to support qualia and then uh, offer ourselves up as research lab rats <laughs> and uh, i offer my services too to help out in any way i can that's, thank you it's extremely important and like i said we all got to step up our game and be sheepdogs and and if everyone you know if everyone who was capable i'm not talking about you know if you're in syria and surviving right now or if you're too young to really but if everyone in the western world and the east who was capable just took some, you know, one small action every day yeah. to evolve themselves and to make the world more of a world-centric place and shift. Wow, very quickly things would shift. You know, and, and just to say in return, we built this for you, right? For groups mm -hmm. like yours mm -hmm. that are working on evolving themselves to have more capability to do a better job at the things that they're doing that are hopefully progressively more and more large, big picture focused and right. meaningful. And then it's how do we take people that are doing great work and give them more and more tools to do better and better right. work. Right. Awesome. Well, thank you so much for doing what you do. And I appreciate it. Thank appreciate you so your much. time today. All right, folks. Uh, you heard it. Um, wow. Daniel, Neurohacker Collective Emergence Project. We will have you back again. Forward to it.
and have, continue this conversation. If that conversation didn't open your mind a little bit, then that should tell you something. <laughs> if it puts you to sleep, that should tell you something too. I'm going to have to go back and listen to this myself. So I'm, I'm really excited about the possibilities here. So anyways, back to the practical. Go do your training now. So go box breathe, integrate this conversation, make some journal notes, and ask yourself, how can you evolve yourself today? And what's your training plan look like over the five mountains, physically, mentally, emotionally, intuitionally, spiritually? Keep it simple, but do the work, day in and day out. And uh, you will evolve. And then if you want to participate in this conversation, go check out Daniel's work at neurohacker.com, N-E-U-R-O-H-A-C-K-E-R.com. And um, actually, you'll see my bio somewhere on that website, I think, as a collective member, Mm -hmm. part of the Borg. I'm eight of nine, right? So seven uh, seven of nine was hot. I want to go meet her, but I'm eight of nine, I think, right? It's something like that. (laughs) All right, folks. Train hard. Stay safe. Stay focused. See you next time. Booyah. Coach by now. Sure you get home, boys. They got your back, the pride of the fleets, the bright swinging frogmen of the U.T.T.